everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by a very special guest today, somebody I've really been looking forward to having on the podcast and introducing to a broader uh, scope of our So We Speak readers and listeners, Dr. Kim Arnold. Kim, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. So, Kim, you, uh, when we first started talking about So We Speak and kind of your background, um, taught me something new, which is that there are PhDs in hymnology, which I was not aware of. You know, in the seminaries, at least, you get kind of a worship leader track. You know, you have a worship, contemporary worship track. Uh, but but this is the real deal. This is this this is uh, a bit different than worship leading. It's maybe a more all-encompassing vision of the church's music. So tell tell us a little bit about hymnology. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm thankful that Southwestern Seminary still has their school of church music and worship. Um, so that musicians can come and really wed music and theology together. Uh, which is what they're doing there. And so when you have the PhD track versus the demon or the D-admin track, you really get into research, you get into historical documents, um, and it helps bring it forward from where have we been to where are we currently and and how do those two work together? Um, so, you know, a lot of what I did was spent time in old hymn, hymn, hymnals or hymn books, um, just looking through um, previous poets Mm -hmm. previous hymn writers um did the tunes always match the same text what did that ever differ where did it differ and so that that is a lot of where i focused my research um and and loved every minute of it well it was like i said it was eye-opening to me and kind of one of those duh moments i hadn't thought about it but if you're going to do historical theology you know you're going to do church history you have to do church music i mean it's a huge huge portion of the church throughout history of what we believe Certainly, uh, up until not too long ago, you would not have felt such a stark divide between what we consider worship, you know, as part of a worship service, the three hymns that you sing before the sermon, and then the sermon, and then maybe communion if you celebrate communion each week. Instead, uh, there would have been a lot more interweaving of singing and poetry uh, in the church and in the life of the church. And um, as we've gotten to talk, I found that fascinating, particularly the subject you wrote about. Give us a, an overview of that and how you decided to write on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in my dissertation, in the, in the first part of it, I said I'd have been out of academic research for 15 years between my master's and when I went back to my PhD. It had family and spent time in the home. And so I finally felt the Lord prompted me to go back and start. And I really had no idea where I was going to jump in. I know that my master's thesis had been um, historical, looking at a specific jazz movement is what I looked at. And so I thought that I really liked that. So um, towards the beginning of my studies, I was trying to narrow down where do I want to go. Um, but I love I love hymns and I love uh, history and I love church history. So it was just kind of a marriage of those two things. So as I got through my first semester and got to meet with my advisor, I um, started to narrow down, okay, um, Charles Finney, was just a very dynamic person from church history. Um, so something around him. And, but then I also wanted to look at Asahel Nettleton. So they were both revival leaders at the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. So it was it was not pushed later into like um, the, the Sunday school song movement with Philip Bliss and Robert Lowry and Fanny Crosby. So I'm back at the very beginning before that 
beginning of the Second Great Awakening, and Asahel Nettleton um, held to more Calvinistic beliefs. Charles Finney held to differing beliefs, but, but some Arminian undertones there. Mm-hmm. And so my goal was to take their theology, specifically their doctrines of soteriology, so relating to salvation, and pushing that into hymnody and seeing where it was reflected, where that specific doctrine was reflected in the hymns that were sung in their services. So it was very easy to do with Nettleton because Nettleton composed his own hymn book. Um, while he was sick, he took a couple years to um, c- to compile his own hymn book. He wasn't a hymn writer, but he pulled from um, you know centuries of, of hymn tunes and hymn texts, and he, he put together his own hymn book. Um, Charles Finney had to partner with the musician at the time, Thomas Hastings, who was a, a choir director in his revivals. And Hastings put together his own hymn book, many of them. Um, uh, Hastings had a Presbyterian background. He's kind of interesting, uh, interesting wedding there of those two people. Um, but from Hastings' hymn books that he published, especially at the time that he was working with Finney, um, felt like I was able to make a strong connection to those songs where they wrote new songs, and it reflected this new teaching of soteriology that had not been there previously with the Puritans, or with the Reformers, or even in the First Great Awakening. Um, so that it was fascinating to do the research and to see um, kind of where that began to shift at the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. And then I intend to to continue my studies now personally to see where that continued to be reflected throughout the mm. rest, the, the later Second Great Awakening and really the 19th century. Hmm. It, it, that's a fascinating study um, when you start to think about the implications for the church more broadly, because these hymns are actually the thing that gets remembered more than the sermons. You know, so right. if you think about any era of Christian history, uh, we think about the preaching being the primary driver of the church and growth in the congregation. But in fact, most people, for example, uh, would think about somebody like John Newton, and very few people have probably read a John Newton sermon, mm-hmm. but many, many, many people know Amazing Grace and some of the other only hymns. Same, mm-hmm. same is true with Martin Luther. Everybody thinks about Martin Luther's theological works um, and certainly in seminary, you're going to read Luther. Uh, some people have probably read little snippets of Luther, but everybody knows a mighty fortress is our God. And so it's the hymns a lot of times that capture something about these movements and then communicate it further out into the church. I mean, the, the modern examples are easy too. Not that many people know Brian Houston's preaching, but many, many, many people know Hillsong's worship music. And it captures something about that era. And like your research shows, you have these two very different approaches in this Second Great Awakening period. And the music reflects that. I mean, their their hymns are going to be different in the writing. They're probably going to be different in the way that they're uh, set to music. And uh, the enduring impact of those is going to be it communicates kind of the DNA of that movement over time. And I found that to be a really... Interesting point. The more we talked about your research, the more I thought that's probably been true forever uh, in the church. And I think it's true now that our music communicates certain things about where we are in church history and who's prominent and who's um, leading certain charges. I guess one of the questions I have about that is, are, are there any hymns from that era that you were looking at that we would still know, but maybe we didn't know that they came from there? I think that later era you mentioned is more famous maybe, but yeah. can you think of any that are still popular? 
Well, so so not off of so from Thomas Hastings and the Charles Finney hymn book. Is that the one we're talking sure. about? Or even um there's not a lot. Now now Hastings also included some of the more traditional ones um that that we would know, the Watts and the Wesley. Um, so so he did have some of those in there. It, it really just changed with when that doctrine of soteriology and even the doctrine of pneumatology, the Holy Spirit's role mm. in salvation, that's, that's kind of where I ended up digging in. And that's where it began to change. So not a lot of those we would know today. Um, they just kind of, I guess, served a purpose at the time of this is kind of this new teaching. We want to teach it this way. Um, but, you know, they were still singing the traditional 18th century hymns that they would have grown up with, too, and known. Um, but in that specific book by Hastings, it was in 1832, Spiritual Songs for Social Worship. Um, there just began, it, it's a much smaller volume than I looked at with Nettleton's. Nettleton's was very comprehensive, had over 600 hymns in it. Mm. Nettleton's only had around 250. I mean, uh, Hastings only had around 250. And so there were, it was, but he cranked out a lot more in his lifetime. And so I think that one was kind of the beginning of, okay, well, we can write our own. Um, and he began to put tunes with the text and um, it kind of, the the meter changed, the the poetic meter changed, the the number of syllables per word or per line mm. changed, and it became much more simplified than what they had been traditionally singing before. Um, so there were many changes that occurred that I think were reflecting this, this doctrinal change more than just, um, like, here's the strong belief, here's the theological belief. Right. But it was, well, the poetry has to change too, and the poetry doesn't fit into the mold that was previous. But the tunes didn't either. The tunes were simplified. The harmonic structure was simplified. The poetry was simplified. Um, so so I, what I feel like is it kind of got set on a path. Hastings was very influential. He partnered with Lowell Mason. They were kind of doing the same thing. And uh, Mason was in Boston and Hastings was around New York and they were doing the same things. And I think it just kind of caught like wildfire, uh, wildfire and began to kind of shift the the trajectory of the Second Great Awakening. Hmm. Well, do you think that trend continues today? Oh, I definitely think that the the songs of the church, <laughs> um, it, it, it matters what you're putting in the mouths of your congregation for when they go out. So they are going to remember your sermon. I do remember what my pastor preached about on Sunday, um, but I also remember those songs. And those songs are what are catchy. Those songs are set to poems. And so there's a rhyme in it. So it's easy to remember the words, but then it's set to a tune. And when that tune gets with it, you take it with you. That was that was Luther's whole point to to the very illiterate society that he was ministering to in Germany at that time. He knew he had to put that to tunes that they would recognize, tunes that they would know, and that's how he got uh, his theology or his teachings in the mouths of his congregations. And so, and I think it brings up a point because you brought up John Newton too. So Newton and Luther, both pastors. And but they're also both poets and they're they became hymn writers. And I think that is that's a key component that we're missing. Um, that that pastors don't feel qualified to speak into anything that's going on with a, a worship ministry, with the music ministry. Um, and so they kind of just um maybe 
leave that to whoever they hire to do that position because that person may have musical knowledge. Um, but but we cannot neglect the theological teachings that are coming from that, which is why um, I think that the the music leaders, whoever you want to call them, of a church need to be pastors. Mm -hmm. They need to know what is the purpose of what I'm doing? What words am I putting in my parishioners' hearts so that when they're in the hospital room, when they're at the deathbed, what songs have we equipped them with? Because those are going to come back to mind, just like we're talking about. I mean, they're going to have scripture that they've hidden in their hearts come back to mind. And they're going to have those, those hymns, those songs that come back. That's what's going to be on their lips in those tough moments. And are we, are we fully equipping them for those moments? Mm. That's a great point that what ends up rattling around your head is oftentimes songs. And we, yeah. we would hope it'd be memorized scripture. And more than that, we hope right. that the songs reflect scripture. Right. But most of the time with people, it's the songs. And if you've been at the bedside of somebody who's um, passing away, many times it's songs that resonate more deeply than anything else. And these eras of the church, like you were mentioning, have a certain feel. Even, even if they're singing the same lyrics, sometimes they're resetting them to new tunes or they're... Um, incorporating them into a broader corpus. And the two examples that strike me of the modern era would be, you know, the Billy Graham crusade era has very potent, memorable hymns. And everybody knows some of these hymns that were sang at the crusades, George Beverly Shea, Cliff Barrows, that as an era of kind of American Christianity, and of course, Billy Graham's influence was worldwide, has a, has a soundtrack to it. Mm -hmm. And our, church uh kind of the the state of the church right now has has songs that go with it I, I think one of the things that's been most interesting to me of the last 10 or 15 years is that it's the charismatics who are mostly providing the soundtrack for the contemporary evangelical church even though the most co contemporary evangelicals are not theologically charismatic mm -hmm. um but the singing is written by mostly charismatics. If you think about Hillsong, if you think about Bethel, Jesus culture, if you think about Elevation, a lot of these places are charismatic and they're writing songs that while uh, your theology of the Holy Spirit may not change, the whole impact of the song is going to lead you to, to a more experiential and less cerebral way of worshiping. And I think that has major pros and, and it has some cons with it as well, but it's certainly illustrative of the impact that music has in a theological sense. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, um, as you're talking, I was thinking about Thomas Bergler's The Juvenilization of American Christianity, because he goes um, to, to point out that typically whatever music is popular at the time that you're in your late teens, early 20s, becomes your music that that is your style mm -hmm. that's what you kind of resonate with for the rest of your life so for our baby boomer generation that became this you know influence of rock and roll but then that has continued so it's not just the baby boomers but now we have continued that tradition moving forward and so that influence of popular culture onto church music cannot be negated and and there's a difference between popular culture and folk culture and so so recognizing that difference. Um, it's one of the reasons Rafe Von Williams went through England um, around the, the turn of the 20th century, writing down all of the folk tunes that he was hearing because he saw popular culture coming down the track and realized that popular culture is this force that's going to take over folk culture 
And he wanted to preserve those tunes and ends up being most of the tunes that were put into the, the English hymnal later. Um, but so, so understanding the, the, the influence of popular culture on our church today, you can see where, um, okay, this generation really likes this style of music. Um, and it may be reflective of like the 80s and 90s CCM industry. Mm-hmm. Or it may be reflective more of the 50s and 60s Jesus People movement, Crystal Cathedral music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as we have continued to go, it's just as popular culture music has changed, so it has influenced the church. Um, so there are, there are differences in that from the hymn singing that used to be set apart, right? There used to have, I go to my concert on Friday night and I could hear that music, but when I would come to church on Sunday, I would still sing out of a hymnal, sing four parts. And so church music always sounded different and it was separate from pop culture until these two began to merge. And I would say um, Hillsong really pushed that in the the 90s, early 2000s to where now, oh, this is my, I, I hear a lot of people say, this is my, my heart language, my, my music mm-hmm. language. This is, this is how I worship. And um, so I think they have become so, so wed together. I don't know that the church um, will ever be able to separate those two. And so, you know, that that's questions for church leaders moving forward and individual church decisions. Um, but but definitely the influence of popular culture is something that at least has to be recognized because I think there are those still out there who, who, you know, maybe, maybe don't want to go that far with it. Um, But if you just take a glance in church history, see that we weren't doing this and now we are doing this and Mm -hmm. how did this come about? Right. Um, So I don't know. I think that that has a lot to do with it. And, and like you said, if it's a catchy tune, well, I'm going to sing that tune, even if the words don't quite match up what my denomination teaches or what I personally believe. Um, I'm still that, you know, for the most part, 90% of that song I agree with. So I'm going to sing that. And so it just gets, it gets in us through the music. It becomes part of our heart and our mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we need to be very careful about what we let in um, and, and, and how that shapes us, knowing how that shapes us. Sure. It's a huge uh, it's a huge discipling component of many people's lives. Yeah. And, and yeah, I do think there's a certain inevitability about it. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's maybe ditches on both sides. I, you and I are certainly uh, on the side of, we want really theologically rich music. We really love hymns. And if they don't sound like the music we listen to, then that's fine with me. But I, but I think in the church, there's an inevitability that that shift has taken place and it is not going to reverse completely. Right. And so the ditch on the right. side of kind of a theological music that sounds really appealing is well known. But but there is a ditch on the other side of we're going to pull the reins so hard back in a direction that, you know, people think, well, if we've got to sing good theology, they're going to be ugly melodies. And, and I don't think that's true either. But right. there is a hazard there. I think the people that right. are writing great music today uh, for the church have accepted the fact that the melodies also need to be appealing in some way or right. another. I mean, if you think of people that are doing really great, rich music today um, that's that people are listening to, it's also different melodically than it would have been 50, 100 years ago, uh, if not exactly the same as kind of our contemporary music. So there's a shift that's taken place, I think. And 
people's ears have really changed in some ways right. too. They're they're not. I think you can hear this if you play an Isaac Watts hymn and then a Fanny Crosby hymn mm-hmm. and then you know whatever from today. You can tell that the the ear isn't maybe as comfortable with certain phrasing, certain melodies, certain parts. Right. It needs to be simplified a little bit. And, and, I, and I think there, there's like a highbrow, especially in some reform circles of like, no, we've got to sing the difficult stuff that just right. isn't going to connect in the way that you really want music to connect. I always go back to Paul in Ephesians and in Colossians saying, you know, that part of the Spirit's work in us is to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with joy in our hearts. There's a, there's a little bit of overflow that happens in our worship to spur on our worship. It's hard to overflow into the 16th century. Most people overflow into the 21st century as far as the melody goes. And so I, I do think there's maybe a, a little bit of a ditch on both sides there. But right. that, but with that said, there's a lot of people doing really, really great music today. And, well, um, and what's, think, what's popular isn't always the best, but there's a lot of great stuff yeah. out there. And I think the, the caution is always flowing over into emotionalism. So the over um, expressive emotionalism. So it's not that I can't stand there and sing um, an, an 18th century hymn and be completely moved in my soul and have tears in my eyes. The, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 I don't think that is the goal of saying you have no emotions at all. We are just, this is totally a cerebral experience. Right. And you need to not feel anything. And so, you know, I, I think a part of that comes from, well, what am I singing? Is it a rich text? Is it paired with a beautiful tune? Mm-hmm. That that I am going that 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 it's that marriage of that text and tune that really helps it find its longevity. Like exactly. um, Wesley's "Christ the Lord is Risen Today." Mm-hmm. If I say that tune and you know that hymn, you're singing that that tune immediately because it's such a beautiful wedding of a text and a tune. And so I sing that on Easter, and I have tears in my eyes every time because I think about what the Lord has done for me. Um, And so that's not, it's the, when we push that into emotionalism and I have to have a high, I have to have an emotional high off this, or it's not really a good hymn or song or whatever it is. Yeah. um, Then I think, I think that is the caution. And there's also a difference with our modern tunes. They're typically written. I don't want to get too musical here, but they're written with three part harmonies versus older hymns are written, you know, in four parts. So you have three parts today. You had four parts. Uh, previously so they sound different that that's the bottom line is it sounds different so mm-hmm. popular culture uses um three part and so that's what my ear is used to hearing and versus older hymns were set in that that homophonic style I mean and, and we had three harmony parts to go with the melody so it just sounds different um, and so right. I think there's something to be said about elevating our tastes in in Christian music Mm-hmm. And and realizing that maybe this um, shallow melody cannot hold the weight of this text. Um, and maybe that melody is way too complex for mm-hmm. this text, right? It can go both ways. Yes. And so that's where it comes to that, that beautiful marriage of, man, that text is rich and beautiful. And that hymn is, is beauty and how mm-hmm. these two you know, then, then come together to, to make an appropriate expression for the Christian in worship. I love the way you've put that. I think that is the goal is that Mm -hmm. marriage of the words and the music coming together with a little bit of challenge sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, to us. I think that's healthy and lots of delight. Like you said, if you find a a hymn that's like that, you you'll know it immediately that 
Yeah. Um, there's nothing like singing great words to a great tune. And on that note, that's what we've tried to do this year in our, our Christmas Advent book that is now available on Amazon. Uh, I was so grateful when we talked that you were willing to help us add a dimension that has been missing in in all of the things that we've done on Advent so far, and that is the hymns of Christmas. And Christmas is maybe unlike, I guess Easter is a close second, but it's unlike any other holiday or any other religious holiday outside of Christianity because it's had, it has its own genre of music. And I mean that not just in certain songs that we always sing, they're actually written in a way that you you kind of know immediately that a song is a Christmas song because of the way they use certain chords. It has its own sound. Yeah. You're never going to find that anywhere else. No, nothing else has yeah. that. No other religious holiday, um, you know, no other social event has anything quite like that. And, you know, we're all accustomed to singing certain Christmas music, whether it's church Christmas music or pop Christmas music, because now there's a pop genre that runs alongside yeah. Our Christmas music as well. Right. Reflect a little bit on uh, Christmas music generally and maybe why you started to choose some of the hymns that you did for our Advent booklet. Yeah. <clears throat> so past couple of years, our family has gone through um, an Advent book together as a family. But then we would also pull out the hymnals in the evening and and we would choose one, whether it's my husband or my son or me, we would choose one because, you know, hymnals typically are written topically. And so you have all the Christmas and Advent hymns together. So let's choose one. Um, and sometimes they were familiar and sometimes it may have not, especially to my son, who is a senior in high school. He may not have known some of those older ones that maybe we sang as a kid growing up, but then there's even some from church history that I didn't sing growing up that I have encountered upon um, my studies. And I think, wow, these are hymns that need to be brought into today. We need to be singing them today because of the, the rich theology that is a part of them. But many of them have been partnered with that tune through the years. And so um, being able to pull those out, that that's where it came from, was, was from my studies and then our own family worship time. Um, and so I think of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel has kind of made a resurgence in the past few years. Most people know it, but it, it's different um, because it's minor and it, it has kind of a more um, oh, contemplative thought to it. And so that one is a little different. But then you also have Wesley's um, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. You know, I think if if we were to say like the pillar of Christmas hymns, joy to the world, mm -hmm. uh, Isaac Watts in that, that yes, that's become so associated with Christmas, although it really should be sung the rest of the year. It has so much in it right. too, for more than just Jesus's birth. Um, but then Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And so you have some of these just traditional ones, but then what I've tried to include, because most people know those. So I've, I've said right. these, most people sing, okay, yes, I know those. Well, then um, what about let all mortal flesh keep silence? Mm -hmm. That's probably not one that that people know, um, but it is it's old. It's from the fourth century. And it is um, such a rich text that when you read through that and you think, ah, I need to get to know this one better. Um, this this really helps explain the the Advent story, the Christmas story, that in a way that I can really take with me um, and, and remember those phrases. Because 
like with Hark the Herald Angels sing, mild he lays his glory by, I think is one mm. of the most beautiful phrases. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. There's just some of these, these lines that, that once you tuck them away in your heart, you say, man, that is that is really good. And that explains everything that I'm trying to put words around. It's already had words put around it. Um, so same with Once in Royal David City. We've included that one in the Advent book. That one has opened um, King's College, Cambridge, uh, Lessons and Carol Service for years and years. And there's a reason for it. Um, it just it, it sets the tone for the entire service, the scripture reading, all of it. Um, and, and even Christina Rossetti's hymns, she may be a kind of a lesser known poet, um, but she has Love Came Down at Christmas. She has In the Bleak Midwinter, which is just one of my favorites. And it, it's sometimes paired with different tunes, but such a beautiful text. So we've tried to find some different hymns that are truly beautiful, that truly represent the Christ story coming for his first coming. Um, and and just expose some of the the evangelicals that are in kind of my circle that may not be familiar with these. Just there's some other hymns out there from history that are worth learning. Well, you certainly did that in here. There's a great blend of old and new, um, old old in church history and new, relatively new, and then old in terms of what we know and new to us from history. I think you mentioned earlier that. One of the beautiful things about Advent, and we've really hit this in the Advent book, your intro does this in a in a spectacular way, is it encourages people to to do family worship at Advent and really to to take the whole season of Advent to do family worship, whether it's once a week or daily or during the weekdays. I mean, different people are gonna be able to start differently with the hope that maybe the they'll catch this and want to do it the rest of the year as well. I think family worship is just one of the underrated blessings of the Christian life in the, in the home. And it can be intimidating to do. And one of my hopes with this Advent booklet is that it would take some of the intimidation away. And you have devos to read, you have games to play, you have passages, you have songs to sing, benedictions to read. Yeah. It really is an equipping book more than anything else. And um, these hymns are maybe the most prohibitive part of, of family worship. You know, if you look at Donald Whitney, he has a great little booklet on family worship. He says, you only need to do three things, read, pray, sing. And people are like, I'm great on two of the three. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> what, what advice do you give or what have you learned from doing family worship about the singing component? Um, so this doesn't have to be more difficult than it needs to be. And I understand that there are people out there who are very um, uncomfortable singing, um, and much less leading it. Uh, so I say, if there's somebody musical in your family, allow them to lead that until, especially if it's a, if it's a child who's maybe in choir, so they're a little bit more comfortable with it um, and, and allow them to teach you through mm -hmm. that. Um, but then there, there is also the joy of living in the 21st century. We have access to any kind of music, anything. Um, and so don't think that you need to go this alone and it needs to be acapella and only your family singing. Um, <laughs> but find a hymn recording and maybe somebody else is singing that. Uh, and, and you want to keep to that that hymn structure if you're singing off the hymn anyways. Um, but that would that would take some of the pressure off and allow you to sing. Um, and so maybe just spend some time before family worship that night and find the song, have it ready to go. 
And then they, you know, that, that recording is going to carry the bulk of the leading at that point, And you're just following along and singing the words. But I think what, what's beautiful about doing that at Advent. So you just have four weeks and you say, okay, we're going to give this a shot for four weeks mm-hmm. and see how it goes. Uh, um, and so there, there does become a familiarity to it. There does become eventually a level of comfort that you say, okay, we've been doing this. I understand how this works. And maybe you find a resource that is helpful where you go to hymn recordings. Um, and so you you start to get in a groove so that hopefully then family worship becomes a thing beginning in January. That's kind of the goal. That was kind of the, the goal with my writing at the beginning of the book was saying, let this time be formational for you and your family so that because it's a short time. And then once you get into January, okay, we we did this. We know how we did this. And you find a family reading plan um, and you take a, a good hymnal and you can choose a hymn out of that. And you you sing that as your part of your family devotions. Um, but I, I hope it starts to become more comfortable. I, I hope there are ways that people can say, okay, this takes the pressure off me because I'm not musical. What do I do? Um, and so there's there are options. So don't just write it off completely. And if don't negate the fact of that's a poem. The mm-hmm. hymn is a poem. And even reading through that in just a poetic style has so much merit. So, so even just reading that set, have somebody else read that poem. It, there is so much merit in that because that, because it's in a poem form, the the rhyme, the meter is also going to be memorized easily. And so, yes. so don't just shut the door and say, that's great for some, but I'm not going to do that. But instead, well, if I just don't feel comfortable and we maybe don't have these resources, let's use this as a time to, um, to, to allow these poems to, into our lives that maybe haven't been there before. Yeah. I like that. You just kind of temper people's expectations and say, Hey, yeah. this does it. You don't have to be the Von Trapp family. <laughs> you, you don't have to have everybody singing the hallelujah chorus and <laughs> multiple true. parts, just turn on Spotify and make it a sing along. Yes, that's exactly um, right. You know, and, and, it, and it's kind of funny too. You, you stumble along through a song once or twice and you you're laughing halfway through and yeah. you can't keep on the melody, <laughs> but then once you've done it a couple of times, it becomes really joyful and you learn it. Right. And and that's part of the joy of it is just learning something new. There's an excitement there, I think, especially for kids in watching their parents learn something new and do something that's slightly awkward. Right. And it becomes a great family memory. Um, it does. <laughs> and that's really the fun of it. And, and when I yeah. looked at the hymns that you sent for the book this year, they were some of my favorites. Of course, I, I also got to beg you to do a couple of my favorites in the in the booklet. But there were some that I didn't know. And two of the ones that I didn't know are from the same author. I'd actually never even heard of Christina Rossetti. But there's two of her hymns in our Abbott book this year. And they are fantastic. Um, you mentioned them in the bleak midwinter and love came down at Christmas. I did a little background on Rossetti. She was really a fascinating person. Uh, somebody I wish people knew more about. I certainly am interested to know more about her. How did you come across her and uh, start to appreciate her work? Well, you know, I've sung in choirs my whole life. And so somewhere along the line, I encountered her in the bleak midwinter in a choral setting. And so then, you know, through the years, I would see it in different hymnals. I would see it in the Methodist hymnal. I believe it's even in the Baptist hymnal. And so, and in the Presbyterian hymnal. So, uh, you know, as I would be at different events and I'd pull out the hymnal in front of me, be like, oh, there is that tune um, and, and the poem in the bleak midwinter. And I think it's the, it's the final stanza at the very end. She, she has, 
it's it's almost a simple poem. It's a child can understand it. A child can sing it. Um, but that final, the ending of it, what can I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yeah, what can I give him? Give my heart. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just, there's a simplicity in that, that says that th- this is the bottom line. Am I willing to serve him wherever he calls me to go? Am I willing to bring him honor and glory and whatever he calls me to do? And so the the simplicity of that hymn, yet, yet there's so much imagery involved in, in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Well, we don't talk like that. <laughs> that's that's not everyday language. And so just the beauty of the way she has crafted her words, uh, I think it is worth knowing. I think it's worth studying and even memorizing and just makes mm-hmm. that easier because it is in, you know, it's rhyme and set to the tune. Once you hear it with that tune, you say, okay, this is this is kind of married together. But um, she she just creates some beautiful imagery in that hymn specifically that um, I love to sing it at Christmas. Yeah, I was looking in the Dictionary of Hymnology, which is written by John Julian, or I guess it was compiled by John Julian. Yeah. And it, 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 and you can find it on Hymnary, uh, I think it's hymnary.org. Mm-hmm. Usually in a hymn, if it's in there, they'll they'll put the, they'll copy and paste the entry. And this was just a, a fantastic work of scholarship to compile all of these uh to commission and compile all of these writings about these hymns. Yeah. And so if there's a hymn, I don't know, I always go look it up there. And when I was reading the description for that hymn, one of the one of the people that was writing for Julian, Reverend Garrett Holder, said that Rossetti deserves a larger place than the than she occupies in the hymnody of Christianity. And I would totally agree with that. She yeah. was somebody that has a real poetic instinct but clearly has a theological foundation to write some some very profound hymns. Um, It's funny you mentioned the last stanza. I think I love the, uh, I love all the stanzas, but I think the, let me find my copy here. Um, I think it's the second stanza that is actually my favorite of hers in that that hymn. She says, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Is As in that fourth verse, there is so much there. And yet, you can sing that around your living room table. The kids can understand it. They can sing it. It, right. it captures... What's so true about Christmas is a child can understand it and an adult can explore it forever. There's so much packed into the incarnation. And she has that poetic ability to capture that. Yeah. You know, that that first stanza, when she talks about, so it says, In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. So people can push back and say, well, that's an English, you know, statement of that, you know, but Jesus was born in the Middle East, there's not snow. Mm -hmm. And so, that. but no, let's think of this on a poetic level. And let's think of what's really going on here. And the earth had stood hard as iron as God had been silent for 400 years, Mm -hmm. you know? And so when you think about that, and you put that into this context, she has just used used imagery of winter 
to describe what was going on on the earth prior to Jesus's arrival. And so I think there has to be a, a delineation because sometimes I, I hear people push back against Rossetti's poems. And I think, no, I don't think we're talking about winter. I think she's using that uh, to describe what the what the earth was like, because there's so much there's just continues to be imagery in that. Even in that third stanza, angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but his mother only in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. Mm. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And it just tells the the nativity story that, that like you said, even children can understand that. And, and they will have the imagery in their mind as they're saying it and singing it as well. Yeah, that first part reminds me of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, always winter, but never Christmas. Right. Does it right. doesn't have to be a literal winter. You kind of know what he means. And it's the exactly. same with Rosetti. It's this cold and dark time of waiting, which is what Advent is. I mean, it perfectly captures right. what Advent is. Um, I love this this hymn. I love the ones that you've chosen. Let all mortal flesh keep silence is one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> it just wraps up a lot of church history in the span yes. of when it was written and when we sing it now. Um, and so I would encourage people, yeah, you, you should sing these, find a good recording on Spotify or Apple Music, or wherever you find your music. But even if you just read them out loud as poetry, they're great, great things to read. They'll resonate in your heart and prepare your heart for Christmas, which is what we really want to do in these times of family worship is stop, pause the all the activities and everything going on so that we can remember what we're really celebrating at Christmas. And singing hymns is a fantastic way to do that. So Kim, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for contributing this year to the Advent book. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to more contributions over at SoWeSpeak.com. Uh, you're writing there so far. People should, should check out the articles that you put there on Thanksgiving and on Christmas. And I'm looking forward to articles in the new year as well. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. I can talk about this all day long. So thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.